If you've got your Bibles, please turn in them to Acts chapter 13. The message, or excuse me, the, the mission of the church was given by Jesus in the first chapter. The mission of the church that Jesus gave to his bride was that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Since then, in our study of the book of Acts, we have seen the mission begin on the streets of Jerusalem through folks like Peter and John and Stephen. We saw it begin to go into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria through servants like Philip and also Peter. And then we watched as it began its journey to the ends of the earth. Now Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, having been sent out from that church in Antioch. Their first stop was at the island of Cyprus. And as we saw last week in that setting, there the Holy Spirit was driving the mission and empowering the mission and accomplishing the mission. We've been talking all about the mission through our study of the book of Acts, the origin of the mission, the object of the mission, the agents of the mission, the route that the mission would take as it goes out, the power to accomplish that mission, the means of the mission going out. And this morning, we get to hit pause for just a moment on all of the activity surrounding the mission, and we get to rest this morning in the message of the mission. This morning, we're talking about what the early church spent its time talking about as it went out on mission. As they stepped out in this mission, what did they say? What was it that they held out to people as they went? Jesus had said, you shall be my witnesses. And so this message was about Jesus. And of course, this message of the mission is none other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of why he came, what he accomplished, how he accomplished it, for what means he accomplished it, and what that means to each of us. This morning, as we watch Paul and Barnabas leave Cyprus and make his way to southern Galatia, all the way to another Antioch, this one in Pisidia, which is modern-day Turkey. Paul there is going to be invited to speak in a synagogue. And when he does, he delivers his first recorded sermon. The message that he would preach again over and over and over. It is the message that he would devote the rest of his life to proclaiming. And it's the message because of which he would one day put to, be put to death in Rome. It's the message of his mission. It's the message of our mission, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we dive into the gospel this morning, the, the message of this mission that we've been talking about for weeks on end, 
those of, it, of us here who have responded to this message in repentance of our sins and faith toward Jesus Christ, trusting that what Jesus Christ did on the cross, He did for us to pay for our sins and to release us from the prison of what we deserve because of our rebellion against Him. As we listen to Paul preach this message this morning, let us be reminded of the the truth and goodness and beauty of this message and savor its richness for our souls and delight in its display of the glory of God. But for those of us here, or for those here who have not responded to the gospel, please understand that this sermon of Paul's, this message of Paul's here, is your one and only hope to be rescued from what you deserve. And so don't miss what he says. So let's read Acts 13, beginning in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 43. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the, message, and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, After me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, 
He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we pause to just give you thanks for your word, how it reveals to us who you are and reveals to us who we are in our hopeless condition apart from you because of our sin. And we are thankful for your word in that it reveals to us your sovereign and divine plan of redemption. Your plan, your divine plan to redeem lost and hopeless sinners like each of us back to yourself. Father, as we pause in the, the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas, as we pause in seeing the activity of the early church and the Spirit using the early church to drive home the mission, let us this morning, Father, pause to just drink in the richness of the good news, the message of this mission. May we find in it a balm for our souls each and every day. And may those who are far from God this morning, even within the sound of my voice in this room, find in it hope for rescue and forgiveness and reconciliation to you. Make the gospel once again our lifeblood this morning as we focus on it in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in last week's passage, we were, in, we were on the island of Cyprus, which was the, the first stop in Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey. And now uh, they set sail from Paphos in uh, Cyprus, and they make their way up to Perga. Perga was, on the, coast, was the, the coastal city and a coastal province uh, of Pamphylia. Uh, But it was only called Pamphylia when Luke wrote the book of Acts. When Paul showed up on the shore, it was still part of what was known as southern Galatia. And it would be the churches that are planted in this very region on this very trip of Paul and Barnabas's to which these people and these churches would receive the letter from Paul that bears their name, the Galatians. 
Now, Paul and Barnabas only spend a short time down on the coast. Apparently, it wasn't much of a noteworthy time before they travel on to another city called Antioch, this one in Pisidia, which is modern-day Turkey, but was also part of Galatia in that day. But before we move on to Antioch and, and hear the sermon by Paul that we want to focus the bulk of our time on this morning, I want to make just a couple of observations before they begin that journey to Antioch. First, note in verse 13 that Luke mentions that it was here that John left them and went back to Jerusalem. This is John Mark. We were first introduced to John Mark back in chapter 12 when Peter was released from prison. He found his way to John Mark's mom's house and there were gathered the disciples who were praying for Peter as he was held in prison. John Mark apparently accompanied Paul after Paul came from Antioch with the, with the financial gift for the church in Jerusalem. John Mark was there in Jerusalem and apparently traveled back to Antioch with Paul and spent time there with the church in Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Apparently he was part of the mission team that the Antioch church sent out with Paul and Barnabas. He was with them on the island of Cyprus. He was with them in this journey through the Mediterranean Sea to Perga. But now, as they begin their journey to Antioch, we're told that John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, this is going to be a big deal for Paul. And we don't see it here. We're going to see it at the end of chapter 15 when they're back in Antioch and they're preparing, Paul and Barnabas are preparing to go out on their next missionary journey. And it's there that we discover that for Paul, John Mark's leaving them at this point in Pamphylia or what he would then call his abandonment of them becomes for Paul a very big deal, so much so that it becomes a point of division between Paul and Barnabas to the point where they end up going separate ways. Now, we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 15. But now, just take note of what happened as they began to make this journey. The second observation comes from the beginning of verse 14, where it says simply, but they, referring to Paul and Barnabas, um, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, what's not mentioned in, that, in those few ver- words there is that this was a journey of some 100 miles. Now, if, if you average a speed of two and a half miles an hour while you're walking, uh, this would be about 40 hours of walking. If you figure eight hours of walking per day, That's 20 miles of walking per day. If you're into counting steps, that's 40,000 steps each day. You do that for five days, and you will have walked from Perga to Antioch. Unless, of course, there is a gigantic mountain range in between those two cities, as there was. The Tarsus Mountain Range was right on the journey from Perga up inland to Antioch. Unless, of course, you were inundated by the floods that were common in that region because of the swollen mountain streams coming down from the Tarsus Mountains. Unless, of course, you were overcome by the, the, by the bandits 
for which this region was notorious. And scholar John Polhill wrote that even the Roman Empire itself had a hard time keeping them under control. On top of all this, on top of this crazy hard journey from Perga to Antioch, apparently the Apostle Paul had a bodily ailment of some sort. We don't know exactly what it was, but when he writes to the Galatians in his letter, he talks about it. And he says, I had a bodily ailment when I came to you, some kind of physical injury when I came to you. And we don't know what it was, but I would imagine that it was something that made an already difficult journey that much more arduous. And the question is this, what message is it? that is worth this risk? What message is it that is worth losing friends over? John Mark, ultimately Barnabas. What what message is it that is worth trekking over a mountain range when you're injured just to get the message to the people on the other side of the mountain range? The gospel's worth it. The, The gospel message is worth it. We've noted many times already in our study of Acts, and we will, we will note it many, many more times before we're done with this book, that the mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth is not an easy mission. It's not a comfortable mission. It will require sacrifices and in some cases suffering in order to accomplish this mission, but it's worth it As Paul would later write about this message of the mission, it is the power of God unto salvation. And so it is worth the risk and it's worth the sacrifice in order to get it to the people on the other side of the mountain. Now, when he gets to Antioch, this Pisidian Antioch, um, Paul and Barnabas begin a pattern that they will model over and over again when they enter into a new city. They go to the synagogue. They go to the people of Israel. And they begin to speak to them. Now, as they go into this synagogue, Paul is lobbed a softball question here. They, they read from the law and the prophets, which were normal elements of synagogue worship in the first century. And then they turn to Paul and they say, Brother, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Talk about a gospel opportunity offered up on a silver platter, right? It's a softball question. So Paul stands up and he motions with his hands because he's Baptist and he begins to preach. And what he preaches is the message of the mission, the gospel. It's his first recorded sermon in Scripture Certainly not his first sermon. He had preached for years down in Arabia while all the other parts of the gospel were beginning to take root in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. He had preached for an entire year in Syrian Antioch. But this is his first recorded sermon in Scripture. And again, because he's Baptist, it's got three points. In verses 16 through 25, Paul tells them about God's sovereign provision for a rebellious people. And then in verses 26 through 37, he tells them that God's means of salvation, God's means of rescue is through his son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he finishes the sermon 
in verses 38 through 41 with a call to respond to the gospel. So let's dive into the gospel, church, and let's delight in this good news that is the power of God unto salvation. And friend, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, this is the message that is your only hope for rescue. First, God's sovereign provision for a rebellious people. Verses 16 through 25 are just chock full of the activity and actions of a sovereign God. John Piper writes that this text is utterly saturated with the activity of God. As I read through this passage, I counted 15 distinct actions of God. Just, just listen, look at, them, look at them beginning in verse 16 as he begins to preach. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel, what did God do? He chose our fathers. He made the people great during their day in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Egypt, he gave their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges. Until Samuel the prophet, he gave them the prophets. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And before his coming, he gave John, and John promised that he was coming. Paul here in this sermon is emphasizing the sovereign activity of a sovereign God. God chose their fathers, protected them, gave them land, gave them judges, gave them prophets, gave them kings, and ultimately gave them a Savior, Jesus. And he does this, God does this in spite of the rebelliousness of man. That's the second thing that he highlights here in this section of the sermon. The, the sinful rebellion of man. In verse, verse 18, he says that for about 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. Some translations say that, that God carried them in the wilderness. Perhaps he had to carry them in order to put up with them. And he had to put up with them because despite them being his chosen people, they were a stubborn and rebellious people like us. And so he carried them, he put up with them. We remember the golden calf, that in their impatience to see Moses come back down from the mountain, they took their gold and they fashioned their own gold into a God of their own making. What rebellion. They were a stubborn and stiff-necked people, as it says over and over again in the Exodus story, who complained about life in the wilderness. Though they had water from a rock, though they had manna from heaven, though they had a pillar of cloud to lead them by night, uh, uh, by day and a pillar of fire to lead them by night, yet they still complained of life in the wilderness and longed to be back in slavery in Egypt. They were a people who, though God had promised them Canaan, chose to believe the spies who said, no, there's giants in the land. And they chose fear over faith. 
and didn't trust that God would make a way. So in, in Paul telling the Jews here in this setting, in the synagogue there in Antioch, in telling them in this setting that, that God put up with their fathers in the wilderness, Paul was reminding them of the rebelliousness of man, the sinful nature of mankind. He does this also when he reminds them in verse 21 that, that although God had provided judges for his people and, and prophets who spoke the words of God and, and, and pointed to God's way for them, yet the people wanted a king. You see, God's provision is never enough for sinful man. He always wants something more. He always wants something else. Instead of delighting in God, he wants something else. He wants something that the world has to offer. All the other nations in the world have kings to lead their nations. We want a king too. God's provision was not enough for them. So in this part of the sermon, Paul is highlighting three things. He's, he's highlighting the, the sovereignty of God. He's highlighting the rebelliousness of man. And that in spite of their rebellion, God continues to be gracious and give them and provide for them over and over and over and over again, ultimately culminating in providing them with a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of the promise to David. I want us to think about these three highlights for just a moment in light of the gospel. The sovereignty of God, the sinful rebellious, rebelliousness of man, and God's gracious provision in a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, those are the fundamentals of the gospel right there. God, man, and Christ. Think on those for, with me for just a moment. Friends, the gospel begins and ends with God. If you're going to share the gospel, you have to start with God. In the beginning, God. God is creator, and he created all things good, including us, including mankind. And he's the end of the gospel as well, meaning he is the goal of the gospel. He's the point of the gospel. Reconciliation with God is the prize at the end of the gospel. When sinful man, who has no right to deserve any kind of reconciliation with God, is reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. And this God is sovereign. He is over all. He is in control of all. And his sovereignty even exists over salvation. As we'll see in next week's passage, why do some people respond to the gospel and others don't? Paul will say in verse 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So God's sovereignty extends even to the salvation of his people. He's in charge even of that. And friend, if you're here this morning, you've not come to faith in Christ. You're investigating his claims. You're checking him out. Please know that this sovereign creator God is the one before one day you will stand. And you'll have to give an account to him of your life. 
And unless you have Jesus Christ as your advocate, that day will be the beginning of eternal torment and judgment. And why? Because of your sinful rebellion. Man's sinful rebellion. Every person in this room, every person on the place, on the face of the planet is a sinner. Man is sinful. And, and, and when I say that, what I mean by that is that man is hopelessly marred with, with an irremovable stain. The stain of our rebellion against God. Paul would later write in Romans chapter 3, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is Paul's estimation of the nature of man. The prophet Isaiah would write in Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him that is on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And because of this sin and rebellion and iniquity and going our own way, we are in desperate need for rescue. We're in prison. We're at the bottom of a cell. And we are awaiting the gallows. And we need to be rescued. We need someone to come and break the chains and open the prisoner doors, prison doors like the angel did for Peter in chapter 12. We cannot rescue ourselves. We need a rescuer to do that which we can't. Believer in Christ, listen to me. This is what Jesus Christ has done for you and I. This is what he's accomplished for us in the gospel. We didn't deserve rescue, but we were rescued nonetheless. Our sin and rebellion were the evidence of our guilt before God, but Christ on the cross has taken that guilt from us and laid it on himself. Listen, fellow believer, here's a warning from this. Not only should this lead us to delight in the gospel and worship God, but it should be a warning to us. Having been freed from the guilt and punishment of our sin, would we now return to it? Would we now return to it and make peace with that which Jesus fought against, bled over, and died because of at Calvary? You see, the gospel is not only that which reminds us of what we've been rescued from, but that reminder of what we've been rescued from is the fuel that, 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 that fuels our fight against indwelling sin. Having been freed from sin's grip by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, how can we return to it and walk in it again? You see, as we daily remind ourselves and as we daily consider God's goodness and sovereignty, our own sinfulness and rebellion against Him, and His gracious provision in Christ, we will grow in our love for God. We'll grow in our thankfulness for Jesus' sacrifice. And friend, we will grow in our contempt for our own sin. The fragrant 
aroma of the gospel will cause the sin in our own hearts to be a repulsive and repugnant stench in our own nostrils such that we no longer want to pursue sin. Instead, we want to pursue Christ and Christ's being formed in us by faith. Or as the 17th century English Puritan Thomas Watson was so famously quoted as saying, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And we might add to his quote, if I may, when sin becomes bitter to us, O oh, church, Christ will be so sweet to us. So fellow brother or sister, let us preach the gospel to ourselves. Let us preach this message of the mission to our own selves and one another. So much so that our sin tastes like rat poison to us. So that Christ will be sweeter than honey to our lips. And to the unbeliever who's here, who's not come to faith in Christ. Friend, your sin still hangs over you. Your rebellion still hangs over you like a dark cloud. And the storm is coming. And you will one day answer to this sovereign God for your rebellion against Him. And like the rest of us, you can't save yourself from that judgment. Like the rest of us, you don't deserve rescue. But it is rescue that God has provided in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the second part of Paul's sermon. God's means of salvation is Jesus. Having highlighted the sovereignty of God, the problem of man's rebellion against that sovereign God, and the need for a gracious provision of rescue, Paul now turns his attention to the means of that rescue he says in verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. This salvation refers to the rescue made possible through the Savior Jesus, the one who fulfilled the promise to David that one is coming who would sit on your throne forever. And Paul says, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. And that message, of course, is the gospel as Paul begins to flesh out the gospel, note again that he, he highlights here the sovereignty of God. Paul says that God sovereignly used the ignorance and blindness of sinners to accomplish his plan of redemption. Look at verse 27. He says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, and, and here's the beginning of a, of a parenthetical thought, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled those promises by condemning Jesus. In other words, those sinners in Jerusalem who should have recognized Christ because the Hebrew scriptures pointed to him over and over and over again, but they didn't recognize him. In their blindness and ignorance and sin, they didn't see it. But because of their blindness and ignorance, they ended up in God's sovereignty fulfilling God's redemptive plan by condemning Jesus to death. Again, we see here the sovereignty of God. Just as back in verse 17, when Paul said that God chose their fathers 
Here now in verse 27, Paul says that God sovereignly uses the unbelief of sinners to accomplish his plan of redemption. Friend, one of the things we'll recognize about Paul's preaching is that he never shied away from asserting the unconditional and impeccable sovereignty of God in the gospel. And so neither should we. Neither should we. Church, in our proclamation of the gospel, in our sharing of the gospel with our lost friends, neighbors, and co-workers, let us not seek to make God smaller or, or seemingly more palatable by minimizing or avoiding any reference to His sovereignty. Instead, let us let the God of the Bible, the God of supreme sovereignty, be the God that we point sinners to. After all, Offending a God who isn't sovereign is no big deal. But offending and rebelling against the God, sovereign God of Scripture is a huge deal. So what else does Paul say about the good news of Jesus? More essential elements of the gospel here. He asserts that Jesus was sinless. Look at verse 28. Though they had found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed there was no guilt in him. The sinlessness of Christ is a fundamental doctrine of the gospel. If Jesus was a sinner like us, then he wasn't God. If Jesus had his own sin, then he couldn't pay for ours. The sinlessness of Jesus is attested to throughout the New Testament. Listen to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 22. He says he committed no sin, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, verse 15, familiar verse, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, what? Yet was without sin. John writes in 1 John 3, verse 5, You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. Again, from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he says, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And, and then he says, what, what were you ransomed with? He says, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, and then he describes the blood of Christ like that, like that of a lamb without blemish or spotless. Jesus was the pure, pure and spotless lamb of God without blemish or spot that was sacrificed for us at Calvary so that our sin may be covered over with his righteousness. As we quoted, quoted from 2 Corinthians 5.21 before, God made him who knew no sin. He knew no sin. That's Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friend, pondering the sinlessness of Christ, the purity of Jesus, and in the same breath, acknowledging an awareness of our own vileness and sin, sinful nature ought to lead us to worship Jesus with not just our lips, but our lives. As 19th century hymn writer Philip Bliss wrote in his famous hymn, Man of Sorrows, the third verse of that hymn says this, 
Guilty, vile, and helpless we. That's us. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full redemption? Can it be, He asks? Can it be? Is that possible? Is it real? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full redemption, can it be? Hallelujah. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus was sinless. Next, Paul tells them that Jesus died and was buried. Verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. Jesus died a death He didn't deserve to redeem those who did. And Paul wants to make it very clear to his hearers here that Jesus did, in fact, die. He didn't pass out and then later get revived. He didn't swoon and then later catch his breath. He died. They took his body off the tree and they laid it in a tomb. But verse 30 says, but God raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a critical point of emphasis in Paul's gospel sermon here. And it is an essential and critical element in the gospel. An element that must be embraced by any who would come to him and believe on him for forgiveness. Paul goes on about the resurrection of Christ for eight verses here. He just camps out here from verse 30 to verse 37. He emphasizes here that Jesus rose bodily from the grave and he appeared to many who were living there around Jerusalem and today are witnesses of his resurrection. He quotes from multiple Old Testament sources to point out that Jesus' body did not see corruption. It's interesting to note that Peter also quoted from the very same psalm, the very same verse of the same psalm, Psalm 16, verse 10, in his sermon at Pentecost, in making the point that Jesus did not see corruption. And the meaning of that phrase is simply that Jesus' body did not stay in the tomb and, and, and experience decay and corruption like all of the other bodies did, just including David's body, King David's body. Instead, his body came back to life. And, and quoting from Psalm 16 here, is not simply for the purpose of telling his hearer that Jesus rose from the dead. But because his body did not see corruption, which was a promise to the Davidic king, this means that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of the promise to David that after you, one is coming from your seed, from your line, who would be a king forever and reign on the throne of David forever. And Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead proves that he is that king. He's the king of David. I don't know about you, but whenever we get to that point in one of our songs or one of the hymns that we're singing, and we begin to sing about an empty tomb, and we begin to sing about a risen Savior, I just want to celebrate. I just want to rejoice. I have a little, little, little happy dance in my own little Baptist closet here on the front row because that is the greatest news. Our Savior who died for us came back to life. He really did. He rose again. Ours is a victorious 
Savior, a Messiah who won the battle with sin and death forever. And that joy, friends, should not be relegated to one Sunday a year on Easter, but every Sunday and every day and every moment, that joy should be ours in Christ. Go read Romans chapter 6 and hear how Paul exhorts his readers that our union with Christ is not only in his death, but also in his resurrection life. There he says this, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Two, two chapters later, he says in Romans 8, verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means our freedom from sin and death forever. It means that we live in resurrection power today. And it means that we have the hope of our own bodily resurrection again one day when he returns for us. And friend, if you're here and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, we want you to know it's true. It's true. Jesus is not dead. He came back to life. He's a risen Savior. The rescuer that we hold out to you in the gospel is a living Savior. And we want you to know Him. We want you to love Him. We want you to worship Him. And we want you to return to Him. Will you? And then finally, Paul closes his sermon with a call to respond to the gospel. Look at verses 38 and 39. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul is telling the Jews here in the synagogue that forgiveness of sins and rescue from certain and deserved judgment because of our rebellion against God could never come by following the law. I would imagine Paul added, I know for the better part of my life I've tried. It's not possible. Forgiveness of sins and rescue from deserved judgment are not achievable by anything that we do. No amount of right living, Paul would say, no amount of religious fervor or activity can move us one inch closer to God. But forgiveness of sins is possible, as Paul says, through this man, through Jesus Christ. And so having spelled out the exclusivity of Christ, Paul now calls for a response. He says, in essence, in these closing verses, that there are two responses to the gospel believing and scoffing to the one who believes who trusts in Jesus Christ as their only hope for rescue from certain and deserved judgment because of sin theirs is forgiveness and eternal life with God redemption and reconciliation to their creator and so he calls on them to believe 
calls on them to come to faith in Christ. Remember that the New Testament word for believe is simply the verb form of the Greek noun to, of, of faith. Faith is the noun, believe is the verb. It's the same word in the Greek. And so it's not about an intellectual understanding or an intellectual agreement, but rather a placing of one's faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ as their only hope. It is believing, yes, that Jesus was sinless. It is believing that Jesus died and rose again. It is believing that, that, that his resurrection is real. But it is also believing and trusting that what Jesus did is sufficient to pay for your sins. It is trusting that he did that for you to save you and redeem you and make you his own. And so he calls for his hearers to respond to Christ in faith. But then he also issues a warning here that the scoffer, the one who refuses Christ, he says will one day be astounded and perish. Friend, we must respond to the gospel. Have you? As we'll see next week, there is a variety of responses. There are some who believe and rejoice at this message and become followers of Jesus. And there are others who scoff and revile this message and begin to contradict Jesus and work against him. To my fellow believer, I want to close with this. This is the message of the mission. And this message is in many ways incomplete without a call to respond. Yes, it is God, man, Christ, but it is God, man, Christ, respond in faith. It's a call to believe on Christ. It's a call to place one's faith in Jesus Christ. And if we don't tell our friends, neighbors, and co-workers that they must place their faith in Christ, then to them this is not good news. I know that we don't always get the opportunity to make that call, but I think in many cases, for me at least, it's that we don't take the opportunity to do so. Paul said that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, everyone who faiths. And so when we hold out the gospel, let us be clear that one must respond to it in genuine repentance and faith in Christ or else it is not good news for them. And to the unbeliever, I close with this. This is the gospel that you must respond to. And if you don't, you will spend an eternity apart from Christ. So friend, I beg of you, don't scoff at this. There's too much at stake. Eternity hangs in the balance. Come to Christ by faith this morning. You don't do that by walking an aisle. You don't do that by raising a hand, checking a box on your connect card. You do that simply by expressing faith in Jesus Christ. That you believe that he is who he says he is. That he's the son of God, become man. That he's sinless. That he lived the perfect life and achieved a righteousness that you and I can't. That he died on the cross in your place. And he rose again, proving that he had defeated sin and death forever for all those who would trust in him. Will you turn from your sin? Turn from your 
desire to run and rule and reign your own life, to turn your life over to Jesus Christ? Are you ready to follow Jesus? Are you ready to make Him your Lord and not yourself? Turn from your sin and self and turn by faith to Christ and His rule over you. And He will make you His. And He will reconcile you to Himself. And then He'll send you out on mission to do the same with others. Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is to be able to sit for a morning and soak in the gospel. As Matt said earlier, Father, far be it from us to think that we somehow get to move on now to bigger and better things, graduate from the gospel. We need this good news not just for our rescue from judgment. Oh, we need it for that. But we need it each and every day. We need to be reminded of the sinlessness of your son. We need to be reminded of our own indwelling sin and the vileness of it. We need to be reminded of your grace and mercy extended to us in spite of our sin. We need to be reminded of the righteousness of Jesus that's been credited to us through Christ. We need to be reminded of the cross. We need to be reminded of the empty grave each and every day so that we would fight sin so that we would pursue godliness more faithfully, so that we can be on mission, so that we can endure suffering for you. We need it each and every day until you bring us home. Help us as a church, Father, to not graduate from this good news. And Father, for the, for the unbeliever in here, the, the man or woman, young or old, who's never placed their faith in Christ, Father, floor them right now. I ask that you would floor them with a weightiness of their own sin and their condition apart from you. And then God, in the next breath, show them your son, show them Jesus, show them the cross in an empty tomb, that Jesus came and died for sinners. God, we ask that you would bring that person across the line of faith and make them your own child, your own worshiper, so that you would be glorified in them and through them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.